Hello everybody, Josh Neighbors here for the Locked On Nationals podcast. Quick update here, it is your fantasy minute, picking a Nationals player to look out for on this season. I would like to say Starlin Castro, 162 games played last year, really productive, hit 270 for the Marlins, 300 on base. I think he comes to Nats Park and has himself a really good season, so that is the first player I look out for when it comes to the fantasy side of things for the Nationals. What are you doing for the game? A universal question. Whether the casual follower, the tweets everything guy, the beginner, the diehard, the stat nerd, the smack talker, the appetizer guy, the couldn't care less or makes everything into a competition person, we all have our place in the sports world. The same personalities apply to fantasy sports and League Commish exists to ensure your fantasy sports experience is the best one for you. We match managers to the leagues as we lay the foundation for your new league. It's an easy as signing up with your preferences. You get matched and approve of that match before any commitment on your end. Sign up with League Commish by February 29th and receive 15% off by entering in the code LOCKED ON. That's capital L O C K E D capital O N in the referred by section on the sign up form. The first 25 people to sign up using our code receive their first match free. What are you doing for the game? Find your next fantasy sports league at leaguecommish.com. All right, now on to my interview with Aram Layton of the Lockdown Marlins podcast as we preview the 2020 Miami Marlins. This is part four of the Lockdown Nationals NL East preview. You can find the previous three in the podcast queue. We have one for the Phillies, Mets, and Braves. And finally, now we have our Marlins one. We hope you guys enjoy our conversation previewing the 2020 Miami Marlins. Hello, everybody. It is the Locked On Nationals podcast, episode number seven. I'm here today with Aram Layton of the Locked On Marlins podcast. This is part four of our National League East preview. We previewed all of the other teams. We are finally at the fish. And today, the p- pitchers and catchers have reported. Did the Marlins pitchers and catchers report yesterday or today? Uh, I think a few trickled in early. Now everybody everybody came in today, but I think a few guys wanted to show face a little bit early there. Derek Jeter likes the gritty hard work mentality. I know Matt Kemp was already out there taking reps at first base, and uh, so it's going to be a different spring training. So they, they're they're out there now in full force. What's interesting was I was speaking to Dylan Short of the Locked On Braves podcast uh, last week, and. You know, I, I thought it was funny. The intersection of fans for the Atlanta Braves is like college sports fans. It's a lot of Georgia fans, a lot of Auburn fans, and then, you know, they're also baseball fans as well, too. I think the one fan that, especially NL East fans, probably don't know very well, like, what does a Marlins fan look like in 2020? And I know it sounds like an odd question, right? But, but you know, you know what Nationals fans look like. You know what Mets fans look like. You know what Phillies fans look like. And I mean, look like from a kind of, uh, you know, all around terms, uh, you know, of kind of age group or what they're, you know, uh, you know, what they're else they're into. But Marlins fans, like, we don't really see a whole lot of them. So my question to you is, what is a Marlins fan like in 2020? Uh, it's actually a really good question because in terms of Miami sports in general, I, I feel like fans Tend to have the reputation of being a little bit fair weather, but 
with everything that the Marlins have gone through, I think it's kind of justified. You know, all the fire sales, a lot of the best players being traded going back from the late 90s after winning the World Series to early 2000s when they traded Miguel Cabrera and Dontrell Willis and everybody else. And then again now with Christian Yelich and those guys, even though that you know rebuild was different, I think it definitely turned a lot of people off. I get quite frequently from a lot of people, you know, I'm not the Marlins fan I used to be. I don't really keep up anymore. But then you have that core nucleus of, of people that have just weathered the storm. And those fans are honestly baseball super fans I, they eat up the prospect stuff they ask incredible questions and uh you know i can go back and forth with these guys i mean some of them could be covering the team themselves i think right uh that i see on twitter all the time that are going back and forth with me and i think that's been the the blessing in disguise is you know there's a, it's it's kind of an overused joke at this point in terms of like marlins have no fans marlins have no fans which which i i understand why people say it um and and i can understand why it's hard to see what a marlins fan is but the the fans that do turn out are die hard marlins fans and at the end of the day there's there's still people at those games you know they're not totally empty you got right. 10,000 people there roughly but those 10,000 fans they eat and sleep Marlins from the low A ball guys. I get questions about rookie ball guys that haven't even left the Dominican League. You know, sometimes right. I have to Google. So I, I think winning is going to be what it takes to get back those, you know, casual fans. You were talking about the college fans that kind of like baseball, but since the Braves are good, are into it. But right now you just have this nucleus of, of fans that are super baseball fans that have just survived through it. Hopefully. Do you see a lot of young? Are they young? Or are they, you know, what kind of the, the age group? What, what, what are we looking at? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think it's an it's a mixed bag, but I, you'd be surprised at how many young fans there are. I, I, my theory on it is if you're if you play baseball through high school, you're a fan for life. So I, I've noticed that it's just a lot of former baseball players, and then a lot of people that are just raised on baseball. And it doesn't matter, you know, how bad the Marlins are. They're, they're they're going to stand by the team. So I, I've I've been surprised at how youthful um, most of the people that listen to my podcast or the readers are on SB Nation with fish, fish Stripes. It's definitely a pretty youthful crowd. And I think that might be partly because they haven't um, – they weren't really around for the 90, 98 teardown, 97 teardown maybe. So they have one less that they had to deal with. But in 2005, you know, I was young even for that one, but I remember it. And that one was tough too. Um, but it, t- it seems to be younger fans that really don't know anything else other than Marlins losing because they haven't had a winning season since 09. Uh, before we get on to the field stuff, I think it's really important that we talk about the Marlins off the field. And, you know, I, I don't pretend to be the expert that you are, but the, the two facts that always struck me were, and they're two completely separate things, were one in 2018, the LSU Tigers out, you know, I'm sure you know this, the LSU Tigers baseball team outdrew the Marlins in terms of attendance. LSU baseball fans are crazy mother effers. They they came to Missouri for, when I went to Mizzou. They were in Missouri for those games. They travel very, very well, so credit to them. But it is a major sports franchise. There is no excuse to be, uh, especially with baseball, no excuse in the South, in my opinion, to be outdrawn by a, you know, a school. Uh, and that kind of leads into the second thing is that the area that Marlins Park is in, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a lot of projected um, boom, I guess, for the area that never really materialized. Is that right? That's that's actually spot on, and that's one of the big problems. So are there things being done to combat those? Because I'm sure 
I mean, I said they're separate, but honestly, they kind of go hand in hand, right? If you kind of make the area more attractive, the people will come. And, you know, I don't, look, I'm not going to say I know how to fix it, but from your perspective, Aram, are there things being done to improve those two aspects, the attendance and the accessibility plus the area slash experience of going to a Marlins baseball game? I'm so glad you asked that question because I, I think that that is the biggest differential that you'll see from this ownership from the previous ownership. I think the previous ownership, they, they weren't interested in growing baseball in South Florida, which clearly, you know, like you said, there is no excuse for being outdrawn by a college. That's it's downright embarrassing. But I, I think this ownership, they saw an investment opportunity because I, I was on, astounded that anyone would pay over a billion dollars for the Marlins, as I'm sure you were, too. But they're, <laughs> yep, they're, a bit surprised. There are people that know more about business than probably you and I. So they saw something there. And and I believe it's there. I think the area – I wrote a story on this in the past. Uh, the the average income of the area is is well below the poverty level or, or right around the poverty level in most of about a five-mile radius of that area. So you're looking at a very uh, – you know, people that just can't afford to go to the ballgame. So – Anybody walking distance of the park can't afford to go to the game. So that's problem number one. And then problem number two is it's really hard to get there. Public transportation system isn't good, and there's a lot of traffic in that area. So now you you want to get to the game early, right? You want to do something. The area is terrible. There's nothing to do there. There's no bars. There's no nowhere to hang out before the game. So most people are just like, I don't want to get there. It's a, it's a pain in the butt, and there's nothing to do. There's no bars before the game. It's not Wrigleyville or anything like that. So I know Derek Jeter has made a concerted effort in investing in uh, the stadium. That was uh, number one, making it cheaper. Uh, the food options have been cheaper. They made the beer cheaper. Uh, they changed the way the stadium looks. They are trying to drum up business around the stadium and the areas around. And I think that's, you know, a start. I don't know if it's going to work. I, I really don't. And I think what Derek Jeter goes back to a lot is the World Baseball Classic, which was sold out. Uh, and, and I don't think all those fans flew in for the, for those games uh, where you had 37,000 fans going crazy for the World Baseball Classic games at Marlins Park. So there's a baseball market there. And even if they're not Marlins fans, people that want to go to the game, just go to a couple games a year. I think that's who they're trying to reach. I think they just want to get them into the park. And they think, you know, once you get in the park, you'll enjoy it. It's just the problem is I think the Marlins just have such a negative connotation now. And I think most of that is from the previous ownership. And this ownership is really working hard to separate themselves from the Jeffrey Gloria regime. I think what's what's important to note, too, and, and I'm just thinking about this demographic demographically, a lot of baseball fan bases, and this is the entire NL East, save the Marlins, the fan bases are white. So, you, you know, like the Nationals, the Phillies, the Mets, uh, the Braves as well, too. Those are all white fan bases. The Marlins, I think in an ideal situation, that is a very diverse fan base. Would you agree? So, Because you mentioned the World Baseball Classic, and, and I think that's exactly what, what Derek Jeter excuse me, and this group needs to tap into is getting those fans to Marlins games. Absolutely. And that's something they've been really focused on. You have 
the players going around the community doing doing things, you know, giving out hats, giving out jerseys. They have theme nights on different uh, parts of neighborhoods. And again, I'm not going to stand here and say every single thing that this new ownership has done has been correct. Uh, no, no ownership is perfect. But the fact that they're making an effort is is refreshing. And I think anyone that covers the team on a daily basis will will say the same thing and that they, they care. This ownership cares. Of course, at the end of the day, it's a business. But you can tell that they really do want to grow baseball in South Florida. And they understand that it's a very different, like you mentioned, a very different atmosphere in terms of demographics and the people that they're trying to reach out to. And they have to be different. You can't market the team like every other team. You're not going to market the Marlins the same way you market the Detroit Tigers. And I think that's something that they've realized. And you have like the 305 menu. You have Hispanic restaurants now in in the stadium, you have a band now that plays in right field and they play Hispanic music. So it, it's it's embracing the culture, I think, uh, while being appealing to everybody. And that's something that they're really focusing on. All right. So the Marlins, 57 and 105 last year. And look, let's let's be frank about this. And I'm going to say this until I die, I guess, this offseason. The four teams that finished ahead of the Marlins last season – are all very convicted in their in their vision for their current roster. The Braves won the division last year. The Nationals won the World Series last year. The Mets, very aggressive in the offseason. The Phillies, very aggressive in the offseason in terms of changing up what they had at the managerial spot. They get they go and get a what they think will be a big arm in Zach Wheeler. They, you know, they've made some other acquisitions as well, too. So how do you – I mean, I, I almost think that is a positive because while we're not going to see some immediate returns, this does give the Marlins a window to build. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And I think the Marlins, even if they – let's say they put all the chips forward like they did in 2012 and went and tried to sign all the big-name free agents, it wouldn't work right now. The NL East is very easily the best division in baseball, and you mentioned it. All these really good teams just got a lot better. And with the Phillies getting Gregorius on top of Wheeler, the Mets even getting better. And now they're going to have Stroman full for a full year. They have more depth in their uh, bullpen and their lineup is still good. And you look at the Braves, they're a young team only getting older uh, and more experienced. And then, like you mentioned, of course, the Nationals are the defending champs. Like it, it's not the time for the Marlins. And I think they know that. So let all of these other teams spend their money, duke it out. And in a couple years when the Marlins farm system has, has gotten better and they have an opportunity where they see a window, that's where they'll spend. I, I don't, I'm not saying they're going to be in the top half of the league in payroll, but I do believe that this team, when they see the right opportunity, will spend. And the fact of the matter is, I think it's kind of gotten buried. The Marlins made moves to be more competitive this year. I, I don't think they're going to be good. I'm not that ridiculous, but I do think they're going to be much more competitive. The fact that they went and got Jonathan VR and they're going to pay him, you know, he's not cheap. He's going to be around. He, I think he ended up being around 10 million after arbitration. Uh, Jesus Aguilar is a good bounce back candidate. The Corey Dickerson, you know, the, they, they went and signed him to a two year deal. Also, these are vast improvements. I mean, the Marlins started 14 different players in the outfield last year and half of them, most people probably haven't heard of and half of them aren't on an MLB roster right now. So I, I think it's a far cry from where the Marlins were before. And 
obviously it's a process and just like anybody you remember what the cubs looked like you remember what the astros looked like you just hope the marlins hit on some of those prospects clearly the farm system is is far improved it's aguilar uh, vr and then also Corey dickerson i'd say that's the big three positional acquisitions yeah absolutely and then they go and get brandon kinsler and he's probably going to close games for them and he was great last year so I- i'm excited i like that big three like you said, obviously it's not a very sexy big three. <laughs> it's it, it's, it's not a Chris Bosh. No, no, no it's not three. the, it's not quite the best big three to come to Miami, but <laughs> the, the, if you look at the lineups last year, they were starting Curtis Granderson in the leadoff spot. Do not disparage. Yeah. I, and I, and I love, I love Grant. <laughs> I love Grandy. Like, don't get me wrong, but he was well past his prime. Obviously he just retired and, you know, you're starting 182 hitting Curtis Granderson in the leadoff spot. You've got like Cesar Puello, career minor leaguer, batting in the two spot, and like, you know, you just a bunch of of guys that just really are not top of the lineup MLB hitters. And now you replace them with, which you know, Corey Dickerson was with the Phillies for an abbreviated amount of time, but he looked really good there. He is an all-star, you know, just two years ago, and it just continues to put up solid season after solid season. Aguilar was an all-star, had a bad year last year, bounce back candidate. And then even depth with like Francisco Cervelli and guys like that. And then they have guys in the farm system that are making their way up. So this team cannot be worse. They, they just flat out can't be worse. It's not possible. So that is a little bit of a silver lining, but ultimately the fact that they're making additions, I think, just has to be something that is refreshing for everybody in baseball. And the fact that they're not just letting the payroll continue to, to diminish. So I've been reading a lot about the, you know, the prospect pool of, of guys the Marlins have been bringing up, and they plan to bring up this season. Who is a name that at the beginning of the season, you know, uh, people like me, people like you know the guys who cover the Phillies and the Mar- and the uh, the Braves and the Mets, who is somebody that we do not know? today on February 12th that we will know by the end of the season and probably for the worse for the, the respective teams uh, for your betterment. Who's somebody that we have to look out for a prospect here in 2020? That's a really good question. Of course, I, I, I if, if you didn't say who we didn't know, I would have said Sixto Sanchez because I'm obviously very excited about him and what he can do. Uh, but of course, Phillies fans are going to be devastated if, if he ends up being a superstar. In terms of uh, under the radar guy, Monty Harrison, uh, or Monte Harrison rather, he is a freak athlete, uh, was committed to Nebraska to play football and baseball. Uh, strikeouts are a big issue for him, but he has 30 30 potential in center field, absolutely flies, can hit the ball a mile. And he was told he's going to have a chance to make this big league roster, the opening day roster, and start in center field, especially with the struggles of Lewis Brinson. Uh, Monte Harrison came over in that Yelich trade. Uh, he was one of the big pieces too, and I am very high on him. Ultimately, the strikeouts are the big question. But like I said, he very easily could be a 30-30 guy with gold glove caliber defense. And if that happens, the Marlins are thrilled, of course, He's very volatile and could fall off the map like Lewis Branson did too. But if there was someone that has a chance to just shock the NL East, I would say it's Monte Harrison. Let's move to pitching. Uh, what are we dealing with here in the rotation in 2020? Because to be honest, I really don't know that much about about this rotation, about this iteration of the Marlins. Uh, you know what they'll be putting out in terms of the starting pitching. What, what can you tell us? 
you know, I think the Marlins rotation is is quietly pretty decent, and and people uh, might might laugh at that, but the Marlins at times last year had a really good top of the rotation for comparative to the rest of their team. Uh, I think Caleb Smith at the top is is a really good lefty that strikes out hitters at a at a, at a really good rate uh, for for a, a southpaw, and he came over from the Yankees, and that was a guy that. You know, kind of just did not get his, his get things going in New York. He came here and had an incredible K rate in the first half. Was banged up and and struggled and gave up. I think led the league in home runs allowed in this in the second half of the season. But he at times, I think through the first half, had an ERA in the twos. He looked really good. Pablo Lopez is another guy who was really good and had some shoulder issues and missed most of last year. He's going to be back and healthy hopefully and be comfortable. And then you have prospects, too, like Sixto Sanchez that could come up. Nick Neidert is another guy that has looked really good when he's healthy and can come up. And there's just a lot of depth throughout the rotation, I think, that the Marlins are going to be able to try a lot of different guys out. And hopefully, uh, you know, they'll figure it out. They moved Jose Urania out of the rotation. But Sandy Alcantara probably is the the biggest lock to be a consistent top of the rotation guy for the Marlins. He was their all-star representative this past year. He was consistent all year long. And I think he's probably him and Caleb Smith will be the anchors at the top of that rotation. All right. So I've asked everybody this question uh, that I've had on so far and you're the last one. The Marlins win in 57 games last year. Odd shark has their over under this year at 64 and a half games. Over or under, do they reach that? I'm going to go with over. I actually do think I think they go over. I think it's harder to be worse than they were last year. Um, I'm going to go over that. You won't. You will not. We'll give you a pass. It's it's a 57 to 65 is not like some magical upgrade where you know where oh this guy's a homer. And and I think this is this is the thing. I, I, I just like I said before, they cannot be worse. It's not possible. So it, when you take a team that started 14 different people in the outfield uh, and most of them were minor leaguers and now you have Corey Dickerson out there, you have potentially several different prospects that could be out there that are top, you know, top 100 French top 100 prospects and then a healthy Garrett Cooper, who is probably one of their best hitters for most of the year last year. That's a hell of a lot better than 14 different fringe minor leaguers just being interchanged out there like a revolving door. And then you have the rotation, which I just touched on with Sandy Alcantara, just getting better. Caleb Smith, now healthy, Pablo Lopez, healthy and Jordan Yamamoto, who I forgot to mention, who came over in that Yelich trade as well was fantastic in the minor leagues last year. And now he's going to have a full season to try and figure it out. You figure some of those guys to make some strides. They cannot be worse. They cannot be worse. Offensively, the walls are moved in. You figure Corey Dickerson's going to make a big difference. Hopefully Aguilar bounces back and VR at the top of the lineup is better than anything they had. They never had a true leadoff hitter last year. So this team cannot be worse and they only have to win seven more games. To be honest, I think that over is one of the easiest in terms of, of all of baseball right now, in terms of just guessing uh, who's going to exceed expectations. Uh, Aram, I agree with you. The problem is the last time I saw Miami over, I liked was this year Miami Dolphins team. And this was this was pre-tank. This is pre-tank. And I took the – I was like, you know what? That's a great over. On my radio show, I said, this is an over I believe in. Burn me. Burn me. If, if, if we take the over, will they, will they not tank on us? I'm willing to, to put 
a, a friendly wager on that one that they will not tank. <laughs> this is this is a really big year for the team. You know, they they have the the top pick and not the top pick, but the third pick in this upcoming draft. So they're obviously excited about that, and they're going to add another probably high end college bat. But then after that, it's time to win. You know, you you did your losing. You built up now. You rebuilt the farm system. Now they need to try and attract fans to come to games. And the only way you're going to do that is win. And I think this is a really big year for them to make a stride forward. And they know that. Uh, I think the players know that. Don Mattingly knows that. He said flat out, I'm tired of losing. It's time to move forward. And I think that's going to be the focus. I think that the moves this year were indicative of that. They wanted to add guys that aren't going to block the prospects but make the team better this year. And that's exactly what they did. And I think the team is at least going to be more competitive and more watchable. All right. Thank you, Arm Layden of the Locked On Marlins podcast. Appreciate your time, man. Thanks for having me.